Welcome to Newsfeed, a podcast about technology, politics, and the media. I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and the central story on this beat today, this week, is the death of Roger Ailes, one of the central figures in really politics and media, and a guy who I think made had no distinction between the two, um, who in his in his role creating and running Fox News. And I'm so pleased to have persuaded David Folkenflick to join me. He's the media correspondent for NPR. He's also the author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. And he's a longtime observer of the really totally singular creature in American politics and and media that that is Fox News. I guess I just wanted to start with how how did you find out that Roger Ailes had died? A friend of mine uh, who's a, a... TV news anchor uh, texted me uh, and told me to look at Drudge, uh, as I think the rest of the world learned about it. Elizabeth Ailes uh, in uh, the final uh, act of Robert Ailes, uh, excuse me, Roger Ailes's revenge, uh, uh, snubbing his old network, uh, gives a statement to Matt Drudge, and there it was, and it was breathtaking. You knew it was true. You knew it was right. Uh, you know, let's not forget that the reason we found out what Roger Ailes's uh, uh, settlement would look like when he was forced out of Fox last summer was that his lawyer mistakenly CC'd Drudge in an email containing it that she had meant to send, I think, to other lawyers. Uh, and he posted it thinking that's what Ailes wanted him to put online. So when you saw this uh, announcement, look, Roger Ailes has been in poor health for a while. He's a lifelong hemophiliac. Uh, and in recent years, he's had real trouble. He's had uh, hips and knee trouble. There was a summer where he basically uh, took weeks off at a time and through other stretches were sitting in essentially in a barca lounger. And yet the, the, the revelation of his death was still a shock. You know, he was a towering figure and a twisty figure, uh, as I imagine we'll talk about. Uh, but he really, uh, the idea of him being dead and gone was stunning uh, and particularly obviously for, for, for folks uh, inside Fox News. And you, um, you, you're, you're, you've written about the Murdoch Empire, and you wrote, you wrote a book about about the Murdochs in particular. How much was Ailes a soldier? In, I mean, in in sort of you know the sort of broader Rupert Murdoch media empire. How much was he his own his own thing? He was given an extraordinary degree of autonomy. Now Murdoch likes to, in a lot of ways, do that, but but. Ailes was really a first among equals and he was that for a couple reasons. He had a clear vision of what he wanted to do and achieved it and he just kept generating so much money for the Murdoch family. Uh, It's a publicly traded company but we're really talking about one that's controlled by the Murdoch family. that they gave him the autonomy he needed. Now, he resented that. You know, in my book, I talk about uh, – it's been some years, but I talk about how resentful it was that although he got shares, he didn't get like an ownership stake. He wanted to feel that he had earned his way in a sense into a level equal to the family, not in terms of equal to their fortunes, but given a taste of you are an owner, not just a guy that we give shares as big bonuses. And he he never got it. So every now and then he would flirt as he did uh, with uh, the idea of going somewhere else, taking a huge payday, pay, taking an ownership stake someplace like Newsmax, you know, saying we're going to create uh, a television rival. It might be smaller, but I'm going to enjoy the action. And then, you know, he'd hold up the Murdochs for a little bit more money and they'd give him a bunch more shares to make him feel good about himself. But he was... Uh, allowed to run the station. Look, Fox News is more conservative than Rupert Murdoch is, even though Murdoch is clearly a guy with conservative uh, inclinations. Um, Both are pragmatic when it comes to their politics, but Murdoch especially so. Uh, And yet, uh, he allowed Ailes to go places that, you know, he might not have wanted it to go and that his sons desperately wanted Fox not to go because that was 
Ailes' personal sensibility, and that seemed to be uh, rewarded by Fox's uh, audience. And just to go back, Ailes came out of a specific kind of American TV, the Mike Douglas show, yeah. I guess, was sort of where he got his start. Where, where, like, where, in, where, in, where does he come from like in that, in that regard, like in the sort of American media culture? So he comes from really a, a, a kind of show business talk show and a show business background. Uh, he saw himself as a producer. I mean, think about the coinage of the term producer. It's really Broadway lineage to that. You know, Don Hewitt, perhaps apocryphally, perhaps honestly, apparently came up with the term inspired by Broadway uh, uh, theater terms. Uh, and he was a producer for Mike Douglas show in Cleveland uh, as a local talk show. And Douglas had it. He had a spark and he drew people in and he was entertaining and smart and lively. And so they were able to nationally syndicate this thing. And he went to Philly to do that and ultimately went to New York, uh, leaving behind his first wife uh, because as, as, as he claimed, uh, she didn't want to come to New York with him. And it was a very different life in New York. He became, he became very interested in show business. He became the producer of a couple uh, Broadway shows, including the Hot L Baltimore. Uh, and, uh, you know, what would, is that? Uh, it was, uh, you know, to be honest, I've never seen it and I've never heard it, so I don't know. But it was apparently a lively production, not uh, not one uh, promoting conservative family values, as you might have heard expounded on Fox News. He he liked the idea of show business, uh, and uh, he liked the idea, you know, kind of the moth to the flame. And so he comes out of this mindset. He toggled, you know, between entertainment TV and politics and more entertainment and what became cable. T- cable news of a sort. Uh, But there was always the sense of a showman's uh, spirit, the idea that you'd find storylines that people would want to be drawn to, the sense that you wanted to have great graphics, great camera work, great visuals, and good-looking people, especially women, uh, uh, in front of the camera. And this – and the – Sexual harassment allegations that wound up – I mean I feel like sexual harassment is actually sort of a strange – a euphemism for it, these kind of really grotesque allegations of kind of coerced sex acts that um, that really brought him down in the end start like way back in Cleveland, right? Like I mean the – You know, I think it – the first case that I recall involves uh, – I think uh, a case involving the Mike Douglas show in a hotel room in New York of a very young – you know, of a teenager uh, and uh, – there are a series of these incidents dating back. Uh, Shelley Ross, who went on to become an executive at CBS and ABC, uh, said that uh, you know it's it's almost three decades ago now, you know, twenty five years plus ago, that uh, when he hired her for a job at an NBC late night talk show, that uh, he said, well, you know, we're going to have to have a sexual relationship. We're going to have to have a sexual alliance. There was some word in there that indicated your commitment and loyalty to me will be uh, manifested through a sexual connection. And she said, no, thank you. And she said she couldn't take the job. And he apologized profusely and never made overtures to her again. Uh, and, you know, good for her for being a young woman in her early 20s at the time uh, who was, had the strength to say no. Uh, maybe, maybe not quite in her early 20s, but had the strength to say no at a time when sexual harassment was more prevalent. But this was just the foreshadowing of what turned into a wave of such action towards all kinds of women uh, in politics and particularly in television where when he had power that he could exert. And it, you know, I did a story about this last fall because I thought it was so important to say explicitly this wasn't about sex. This was about the exertion of power. You have to show to me that you are yielding in the face of my power. Now, Ailes, we have to say, even in death, he denies all these things. These accusations, though, I think it's so important to say there are so many of them. They are so consistent. They are so precise. Women who don't know each other saying the same story 
often many of them not filing lawsuits, many of them well outside the statute of limitations, you know, not having a financial incentive to do so. Uh, I think it's very hard to do anything but credit these allegations at this point. Do you, and I know this is sort of a tricky question, but do you see any connection between who he was as a public person and these allegations? I mean, was this sort of a aberration or was this somehow a consistent consistent with who he was? I don't think we understand Roger Ailes without knowing this about him. I think the idea of power, you know, he, he called Fox News uh, the most powerful name in news. This is not something CBS would aspire to. This is not something that the Washington Post would say. Washington or, Post or would, maybe they wouldn't admit aspiring to it. They might enjoy it at cocktail parties. Somebody says, oh, my goodness, you're the national editor of the Washington Post here in Georgetown. You know, you're, you're quite the star. People might get into that kind of thing. And God knows with, with the advent of television, you know, people enjoy that, those click lights as well. But the idea that that's your brand is power, I think, was a personal reflection of who Roger Ailes was. The idea that you have to uh, pay a kind of fealty. This is something he exerted in Republican Party politics as well. You saw this. This was something in terms of the sexualization of women. You know, Among the things that seemed to start uh, all of these conversations he had with women and these exchanges he had with women, he would say, I'd like you to turn around for me. I'd like you to, to lean in and, and do something. Spin, right? I want you to spin. I want you to turn around. And he would check out their figures. And on the air, you know, when I was doing this book at the tail end of reporting on it, I think it was the summer of 2013, I learned of what was called the leg cam. Now, this sounds frivolous and silly and uh, cringe and laughter inducing, and it is. But basically, for a show like The Five, in which five people are arrayed, he would always put, uh, uh, he would basically have uh, producers mentally rank who had the best figure among the women and put them on their right, our left as viewers. And then the camera, when you'd go to and from uh, the segments, would swoop down around the set, focus on the woman, linger, do a little kind of oval loop and come back again. And the women who wanted that show or shows like it, who were well um, remunerated for doing it, uh, would sit in that chair and they would wear shirts, always skirts above the knee, and they would jangle their ankles just so, so their high heel would go up and down and up and down, and it would force your eye and your attention to their heel, their legs, their body, their looks. And that is what Roger Ailes rewarded. So you've built a, a baked into the formula, and this is one of many examples, but you've baked into the formula a sexualization of women and the realization they have to perform for Roger on the air. That's what he wanted. He always said, well, that's what viewers want, but that is what he wanted to see. And he engineered a network to do that. And there was a kind of culture of control, sort of control there that, I mean, you know, we, you and I and many others get leaks from media companies all the time, hear all sorts of gossip and rumors. And, you know, you, you wrote a book about the Murdoch empire. Gabe Sherman wrote a great book about Fox. This wasn't in those books, right? Like this was stuff that maybe, I mean, how did they, how did this stuff, because it's so egregious, like how did it stay secret? So... To be fair to Gabe, there was an intimation of this. I believe the Shelley Ross incident was yep. in there, and I think there might have been one other uh, uh, allusion to another thing. But you know, over the course of fifty years, two women—perhaps it was a different age where bosses could ask women out. Perhaps it was—I'm not saying it justifies any of it, but I think that's how it struck a lot of readers. They didn't focus in on said, "Oh my God, you know, he killed a man." That right. wasn't—you know—that wasn't what people did as a takeaway. But there was a a little hint of yeah, that for sure. I got to say that this scandal makes Gabe's book and our and my reporting and others people reporting on on Ailes and Fox make much more sense. 
It was a paranoid cult culture. It was a control culture. We knew that. It was a punitive culture. And that's part of it. In some of these lawsuits, you know, they have named uh, the lawyers. They've named the publicity uh, chief. They've named other people as part of these suits because they see them. Uh, Bo Deedle, you know, emerges. He's a private eye who has been, was for under Ailes, a Fox News contributor. But really, he was given uh, a position at Fox so that Ailes could justify having him on the payroll and send him to go do stuff. Yep. Deedle has said of late, well, uh, uh, one of Bill O'Reilly's accusers, or first accuser, Andrea Macris, who had been a producer there, who got a ton of money to cut short her lawsuit, which was just going to get more devastating for, for O'Reilly and Fox a decade ago. Uh, he said he was hired by an outside firm to do it for Fox and for Ailes. It's hard to know what to make of that. But clearly a guy like that is there so that Ailes has people who can tail people, who can do yeah, intel they're, on they're this. There's sort of an ongoing cover-up basically. Right. Well, this, think uh... about you know one, one anecdote that's amazing. Lori Dew, uh, who was an anchor uh, for, for years at Fox, about a decade ago goes to a black tie dinner at Washington. And uh, a story emerges in the reliable source gossip column of the Washington Post saying uh, she, she was you know, basically saying she's drunk at this party and that people were saying, Lori, don't. Lori, don't because she was knocking into people. And there's a picture of her hoisting a, a glass and her looking a little buzzed or buzzy anyway. And uh, uh, Fox has asked for comment and they said, well, she had a really good time that evening. But all, all of us had a really good time that evening. Fox News leaked that to the Washington Post. They had their staffers go through more than 100 photographs to find the photograph they gave to the Post taken by their own contractor to show her at her drunkest. And why did they do this? They were punishing her because she had complained in an elevator in front of other people that she wasn't getting sufficient publicity. Why did they do that story? They did that because privately they knew that she was an alcoholic, something she would only announce later. So the publicity people, with Roger's full permission, are going after her to punish her for a slight in public uh, about a nothing comment as a way of showing to other people, you cross us and we will go after you. You want to know why people don't have a habit of saying embarrassing things about Roger Ailes and the top executives? That kind of culture, that kind of culture is why. And in addition, you know, people at Fox, many of them, executives and staffers have said, the elevators were miked. The hallways were bugged. They monitored. You know, if you talk to corporate executives, 21st Century Fox, the parent company, they'll say, well, you know, it's a different culture, whatever. We never knew about X. We never knew about Y. But when you say the phones were bugged, the devices were monitored, they had little software things where they could do keystroke things where if you said type the word ales, a copy would go to security. 21st Century Fox will say, well, and we're entitled to do so under employment law, which is true. But what they won't say is that is part of the enforcement mechanism uh, of a culture like that. Yes, they are absolutely entitled. You know, United Airlines does qu quality control on, when you call in the customer service line. They're entitled to listen in. And yes, Fox has the right to do that. But they were doing it for a different reason. There's a federal investigation underway right now of some of that stuff. Is, how much of a threat with Ailstead is that to, the, to Fox? Well, it's not, uh, as far as I can tell, really a criminal investigation aimed at Ailes. I think it's a criminal investigation aimed at the corporation and, and particularly at Fox News, uh, whether these uh, payments were hidden. To me, you know, I talked to good corporates, uh, whether the payments were hidden and more recently also into the question of this culture of intimidation and, you know, were, were things legal and also did it amount to a different kind of enterprise somehow? I mean, there's been suggestion that they could be looking into this under racketeering laws. It's, it's a very troubling thing. The Murdochs are very concerned about this. Uh, it reminds me of the concerns back during the hacking scandal from London uh, where 
you know, everybody focused on the hacking of phones over there. But what the Murdochs were focused on was the fact that the revelations they had been paying cops and other public servants there, that had implications under U.S. law, uh, the, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And they were very concerned that there would be prosecutions here for that. So they, they did a lot to try to make that go away. In this case, you know, uh, I talked to corporate governance people last summer when they said, well, these st- uh, payments were hidden. Is that a problem? And they said, you know, the amount of money – you know, the biggest payment at that time that we knew about or that it occurred at that time was in 2011 to a woman who credibly, as it turns out, alleged that that Ailes had uh, essentially extorted sexual acts from her over a more than two decades period uh, and that they basically hid uh, the payment in 2011, which, by the way, is the same period that the hacking scandal was breaking wide open. So they say t- three million bucks. You know, it's a publicly traded parent company, 21st Century Fox. Fox, you know, tosses off well over a billion dollars a year in profits. It's not important. But it turns out to have been an early flag. If you look at that payment, it's saying something is weird. If you're paying a woman three million bucks to go away, you're not doing that because nothing happened. And it's maybe not the first time you did it. And it's maybe not the only time you did it. So then what happens? Well, what happens is you've seen a a turnover of about half of the C-level suite at Fox News. You've seen them lose their founding visionary. You've seen them lose Bill O'Reilly. You've seen them lose, you know, the CFO, the head of uh, HR, uh, a bunch of folks. Some of them are still there. Their president, Bill Shine, a bunch of people are gone. So in some ways, that little $3 million flag and some of the other payments that went on over the years, uh, while financially not important to the investors in the Murdoch's empire, may be important to the, the corruption of the culture of the leadership of Fox News and maybe investors needed to know about that. That may be a stretch for prosecutors, but it's saying we're not talking about the dollar figure here. We're talking about the concealment here. Do you, um, do you know what Ailes made of Fox in its sort of last, last post-Ailes period? Like when do he was I know sitting there? Ailes, when, you know, his last po- yeah, I mean, was he watching? Was he? Was he oh, I'm sorry. You're not, not what he made financially. But no, no, no. What he, yeah, what he thought of it. Um, did you did you I, talk actually? Did, would he talk to you? Did you talk to him? Not on a regular basis. I'd spoken to him over the years a few times. And did he, when you covered him, did you ever get you know harassed or followed or sort of gossip attacked in the gossip columns? I once got a, a crazy Arena Briganti placed item in a gossip column, which I considered a great honor at the time. Um, I would get trashed uh, in trade press and in other places. Uh, I know that I was. Uh, uh, I don't know that John Cook of Gawker once asked me, were you followed? And I said, if they did, I don't know about it. Uh, I don't think they took my book, for example, as as seriously at Fox as they took Gabe's book because it was a, a squarely a biography of Ailes. And it turned out Ailes had something very deeply he wanted to hide as well as being a secretive and twisty guy. But uh, uh, I do know that they – I had other reporters call me and say they would just call and trash me, just sort of volunteer that, that I couldn't be trusted, that, that, that my reporting wouldn't stand up. It, all of it stood up, but like they would actively go and say, you can't report that. It's him. You can't do that. On the other hand, uh, and, and I was also warned at one point by a person who I won't name who worked in PR there that they said, we have a full portfolio on you. We have a dossier on you and we know you. And, you know, I haven't defaulted on a mortgage. I haven't, you know, I, I don't have a, a very expensive cocaine habit, you know, like I, which they actually did uh, expose to Tim Marengo, who's a reporter for The New York Times. Uh, who I've talked to about this uh, 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 for the book, uh, who they, they they trashed and leaked that to a number of places. But I don't know what it meant that they had a dossier on me, but they thought that that was a menace and that that was something that would make me back off. I will say one of the interesting uh, things about my relationship with them and their PR shop is a direct reflection uh, of Ailes. 
Uh, he had a guy, Brian Lewis, who worked for him for many years until he fired him because he was concerned that he was leaking to, to Gabe Sherman. But, but they respected the fact that when I would criticize Fox for stories about Fox, whether you know the old uh, Jim Romanesco's uh, blog, whether it was uh, uh, for David Carr or whatever, I would always attach my name to it. Because I just said, you know, I'm going to say this, uh, what I would say privately, what I'll say publicly. And it was fine. And they would, you know, they froze me out two or three times for, for a period stretching over a year where people literally would email me from Fox on their private account saying, I'm not allowed to talk to you. There is a policy now. You know, and so that lasted, last time it was over two and a half years. But the PR people always said, we respect you for putting your name behind your criticism. And so I think that they, they wanted to inspire fear and they respected when they didn't. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. The... Um I'm so, thinking about, you know, if if Trump had lost the election, that ails his death, I think we'd probably be writing a story that was like the kind of last of the last of this kind of era and generation exit the stage. Fox sh- continues to shift dramatically to the left under the new, you know, this new kind of like post, uh, you know, post conservative era or whatever we narrative we would have concocted for that for that moment. Um, but Fox does feel like a little lost right now. The, uh, talk, I think they talk, don't know what they want. I think Rupert Murdoch is fighting, particularly with his son. You know, uh, James and Lachlan Murdoch, the two sons of Rupert, are running the parent company, 21st Century Fox, with their father. Uh, They're in their 40s. He's in his mid to late 80s. You know, there is a generational shift slowly happening. But when Roger went, they need to stabilize Fox. Rupert came in as the acting CEO, which he remains. Uh, They don't know what they want. Suddenly, they had tried very hard, for example, to keep Megyn Kelly who herself had been harassed, she says, credibly as a young woman at Fox News. And uh, their inability to have a fully, in her mind, sincere response uh, to what happened to her, uh, even as they very much sought to pay her big money to stay, uh, helped contribute to her decision to go. She just said, I I just want to be in untainted waters here. I just don't want this to be my workplace any longer. The fact that Bill O'Reilly, on the day of her, uh, the release of her book, in which she talked about uh, Ailes harassing her and which she had cleared with the Murdochs and with others that she was going to have to do that for the book to be credible and which was published by a Murdoch imprint, HarperCollins. Uh, Bill O'Reilly went on his uh, show that night uh, which leads – or at that time led into hers and he said, you know, let's talk about loyalty. You know, if you have a problem with your boss, you know, you take it up with him internally. You don't talk about it publicly and he talked about the importance of loyalty and the importance of commitment and he basically trashed her. Uh, on the air, if if she felt that if they were sincere in what they were doing, they would have gone. Well, if Hillary Clinton had won, Megyn Kelly would have been the most important face for Fox News in the eyes particularly of James Murdoch. It would have been – maybe you could call her at that time on the center right. But you know, a tough, credible woman whose hairstyle or looks – and this is part of how television is thought about – is not that dissimilar from a younger Hillary in some ways, like a more striking woman. But nonetheless, you know, you've got something of the same visage there. This would have been a modernizing face for Fox News. Instead, at that time, they lose her and she – although they made a genuine offer, it, it wasn't a catastrophe. What could they do? Well, they had had uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly, you know, angry Long Island guy who's kind of common sense guy who kind of gets Trump. They have Sean Hannity, Trump's biggest supporter, and suddenly they could be Trump TV. And, and that's what and is that was that just what they're going to be? They're going to be the which is what they are now. This kind of really to the point of parody, reflexive defender of Trump. Well, it's it's problematic. I mean, they haven't lost a ton of viewers or anything. But it's boring. Isn't it kind of boring? They're playing a sort of. Uh, 
a sullen defense right now. Yeah. And MSNBC, because it's got a liberal primetime lineup with recognizable figures, is getting this wave of, of angry liberals watching. And CNN is getting a lot of people watching because it's an incredibly news intent, you know, intense period, as you know, best, you yes. know, uh, better than most. So it, it strikes me that Fox is unable to capitalize on the moment. In a weird way, Fox found uh, its purest voice when Obama came in. Not only do you have a liberal president and you get rid of the fact that they had a conservative guy who they liked who had two unpopular wars, mm -hmm. Katrina, the financial crisis. You get Obama in there and suddenly you get the guy who gets to be the repository of all that's wrong with the world. I mean for Roger Ailes – put it this way. You watch Fox and having uh, a black guy with a Muslim middle name uh, as president of the United States is uncomfortable to the point of angering and, and, and a cause for deep suspicion. For Roger Ailes, it was almost cataclysmic. Like this was not purely a cynical play on his part. It was reflecting a slightly moderated view of how he thought in private. This was everything that they've been warning you about. For this, is, this is all of the future coming at once way too fast. And uh, so you saw them double down. You saw them reach for Glenn Beck. You know, you saw them try to find a way they could become uh, more culturally conservative. When you have a president who is a celebrity that they helped to propel and promote for in recent years as a credible political figure when it's hard to make that claim with a straight face outside of Fox News, uh, you know, it's hard for them to play defense when he's, he's, he's being tarred and hit by so many uh, scandals and crises, all of which are self-inflicted. Yeah, and, it's, and there's something for them obviously – I mean, I guess energizing maybe is the right word to be the voice of this sometimes kind of wild-eyed opposition. Being the attack dog for the beleaguered president is, is among other things, just sort of boring and incoherent when you it's watch it. It's fun to be triumphant. So if they were passing uh, the uh, the overturning of Obamacare right. and replacing it with you know a, a, a you know, $1,000 a year voucher or something, if they were heralding the cut in the tax rates, if they were heralding the reversal of uh, – uh, of, uh, trans bathrooms, you know, where, where you know, like right. if they were doing all these cultural touchstones and America was going exactly in the direction that Sean Hannity has advised, then that might be exciting for a while. But it's much easier, as you say, you know, Bill Shine told me this explicitly in 2009. He said, you know, this may, does this make it easier for us to be the voice of opposition? He's like, it sure does. And it provided a clarity and a logic to their programming. I think there's a tension between Rupert Murdoch and James Murdoch in particular. I think you see a tension on the airways with what to do with, you know, as I said, this self-inflicted crises that are besetting a president that they clearly supported. Uh, you know, Ailes – And Trump is obviously a real expression of, of – um of their values. But one, one question and, and, and seems to basically consume and live through Fox these days. Yeah, one of, one of those values being celebrity. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You, you, you said this were the earlier modernizing. And I think like, right, the notion that Fox was sort of set up to modernize under this new generation with a lot of, with after this purge, you know, seemed, that seemed like the narrative that was coming when, we, when everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Um, but Trump, you know, Trump now is obviously the central media figure, among other things. And he's he is a pure 1980s media figure. He reads the New York Post in the morning. He watches television. He said the other day. Barbarians at the gate, right? He, he said the other day, if you saw this, but he said in an interview that, you know, he, the New York Times, if you notice how thin it's getting pretty soon, it's just going to be on the Internet. Like, I don't think he really knows about or believes in the Internet. Um, and Fox's audience, you know, average viewers, late 60s. Early, I mean, I think. Early I, I mean, I know that Bill O'Reilly's audience was uh, uh, 
over half of its audience is over the age of 72. Can they modernize or do they just, I mean... Is it a harvest strategy where they just uh, take their viewers until the viewers die off? I, I mean, I don't know. Like, can Fox modernize? Uh, it is going to have to take a conscious effort. This is not going to be a, a gentle recalibration where, you know, uh, uh, Waze tells you to take a left a mile earlier and, uh, you know, you're going to do fine. This is going to have to be a, a really uh, conscious strategy for them to figure out how they uh, appeal to a younger audience, uh, uh, an audience that consumes a lot of news online from a lot of sources. Because they don't, aside from running anonymous blogs to attack their enemies, I don't think they really take the internet seriously, right? Well, certainly not as reflected by their website. Yeah. I mean, I think it's complicated to navigate. A lot of their stuff doesn't make it online. Uh, they see it as a place often to appease uh, talent that's not getting a chance to do uh, stuff on the air. Do a, do an internet special. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's where a lot of the folks who uh, uh, Rupert, uh, excuse me, who, who Roger Ailes would hire uh, would get a chance to write columns or do uh, do certain kinds of other things. I mean, there are some things there. There was this uh, Fox News Latino venture, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, my uh, colleague much, Adrian Carasquillo worked there for yeah. a bit. And I, 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 I had a good regard for some of the work they were doing there. It often cut against the messaging you'd see on the air. And on the air, you'd see a much more skeptical take of some of their work. Uh, but uh, I don't think they really have a sense of what to do with it. You know, CNN is seeing digital as a major revenue source. You know, uh, it, I find it a very clunky site to get around and I think they need to address that. It is not uh, user-friendly, but there's a ton of stuff. They do a ton of original reporting. They've got a lot of video there, sometimes in some ways too much video there. Uh, and the, it's, it's becoming you know, a major nine-figure revenue source for them. I, I cannot imagine that is anything like that at Fox News. They know that it is, is just a, a very difficult uh, uh, site to navigate. They've improved it, but it's still got a long ways to go. And, and more broadly, Trump was kind of powered by Fox. He drew a lot of his ideology from Fox. His, his voters obviously were not on, you know, people talk about Twitter, people in their 60s and 70s were watching television and his, and his base is older. But he brought with him this kind of new right, this, I think, much smaller audiences right now for Breitbart, for the sort of constellation of sometimes more extreme, sometimes really openly white nationalist voices around Breitbart. Um, it's, I've noticed I don't see those people on Fox a lot. Fox is certainly not – does not seem hugely excited about the rise of this kind of new internet, right, even if they're taking stories from them all the time. And I do wonder, like, do they, do they feel threatened by Breitbart and by this new these, – these new voices? I mean I think uh, Ailes uh, wanted them close enough that they felt uh, uh, cordial and uh, also close enough that he could try to figure out ways to strangle them if he needed to. You know, I think he – you know, he he was friendly with Chris Ruddy, the head of Newsmax, but he didn't want Newsmax to rise up as a possible. No, I mean you didn't thing. see them promoting Newsmax voices, right? Every now and then, I think I saw a Newsmax guy out there in the last forty-eight hours, but mm -hmm. I, I was struck by it because it's not common. You don't see a ton of Breitbart folks on Fox News. You see a lot of people from Town Hall, but you don't see folks from Breitbart News. Uh, you know, Town Hall is just a very different model. It's a collection of uh, mostly uh, you know opinion writers uh, on there, syndicated yeah, columnists. It's, it's not. It's not a threat. It it's not a threat. It's just its box. own. It's got its own shtick, but it's 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 not a threat. Uh, you don't see, uh, you know, Breitbart when Andrew Breitbart was there. You know, had this funny relationship with Fox, where he'd have him on to perform because he was kind of a performance artist as much as yeah. anything else. But uh, they didn't really want to rely on on Breitbart for news, and it also hadn't quite built up to the extent it has. You know, you would imagine James O'Keefe. Uh, would have been on the air on 
on Fox News if they if they trusted him. But there was enough blowback. I mean, Andrew Breitbart and I before his death talked about O'Keefe, and he didn't quite trust O'Keefe either, and that you know seeped up to Fox, so they didn't put O'Keefe on. But there are these elements of this uh, more radical spirit, uh, uh, n- not just simply from the question of you know white nationalist or even racist uh, sites, but these elements of the more extreme uh, right in the kind of media space that Fox isn't comfortable with. And partly it's that it wants to be respectable enough that it still can claim it's part of the media and part of the news media. And it is. It does have journalists, some of whom are, are good and capable, but they're working at a place where the news isn't the point. And and so what, what you see at, at Fox is uh, – uh, particularly under Ailes, is a desire not to allow sort of younger rivals to become too big, but to ride their ride their enthusiasm a little bit as best they can. One of the things that always struck me about Fox was clearly they had a morning meeting. I think it was, and I think it was like on the second floor, and everybody would, executives would come out with their marching orders, and you could see it flow across on the air. And, and this was one place it reflected on the website, which I, as sort of an internet person, probably saw more, which is that you'd have the same image, the same language, the same story, like it was. Clearly, somebody had decided that this was through the day. This is how we're talking about it. This is how we're illustrating it. Like, who's sitting in that Barca lounger now? Because it seems like it still happens. Like, yeah, like quite recently, there was this ludicrous story that Seth Rich, I think it was trying to imply that this poor DNC staffer who'd been killed had been, like, set up by the Clintons. It was an incoherent, ludicrous story based on totally messed up reporting where their source had actually heard it from them and was repeating it to them. I mean, really, like, a total debacle. And yet you did see it, like, suddenly it's leading the website. It's on air. Like, who – it seems like Fox is still organized a kind of around a central brain. Who is that? Is that it's, Rupert? It's centralized. It's very much centralized, and they would always object when when we you know, reporters like me would write about this and say, "Oh well, look, you know, ABC News does this every morning too. It's the same thing. It's not the same thing. No. It's a very intentional thing. What are they doing with a story like that? They're playing prevent defense. They're trying to take up grand scopes of time and attention from anything to do with the Trump crises that are currently playing out. And so, what can we do? We can talk about Hillary Clinton. We can mention the servers. We can mention WikiLeaks. We can mention the hacking. We can mention a young man's death. Suddenly, all the older viewers who remember Vince Foster and all the uh, deaths that were ludicrously and offensively pinned on the Clintons over the years." You know, would be reminded of that. You know, at, you know, it evokes the pizza uh, gate terrible. Uh, uh, you know, allegations utterly unfounded and unfair. Uh, you know, claiming that there's a child sex ring being run out of a pizza parlor in uh, Northwest D.C. by somebody linked to the Clinton campaign. It just none of it was true. Uh, deeply offensive and problematic. In this case, a young man's death is being exploited by Fox News. And you know, you, you mentioned that their source. Their source was an investigator who's kind of working for the family to figure out what happened in this botched robbery, according to cops. The investigator was hired by a guy who's a frequent Fox News commentator and personality to the point where he has his own little landing page on Fox News. Like, it seems like a closed ecosystem for this story. What the hell is going on there? What are they doing? Well, they are telling you, don't listen to this other chatter. So Suzanne Scott, who is a protege of uh, of Roger Ailes and of his deputy, uh, Bill Shine, both of those men are gone. She now is the president of programming. And what's going on there? Well, uh, you know, the people who are in that meeting basically have effectively a triptych, incense candles, and a hologram machine designed to conjure up the spirit of Roger Ailes and figure out what the hell would he do if he was handed uh, these cards to play. And this is the best that they can come up with. I don't think it's particularly coherent. I don't think it makes sense. I think people inside Fox don't think it makes sense. I think they're looking for some clarity, you know, and 
you know, Rupert Murdoch keeps trying to signal ways in which he's got a new day. So he'll get rid of leaders here. He forced out Bill Shine a couple weeks ago. Uh, this week, he announced that there are these grand new newsroom design plans. And what is what is the message he's sending there? Well, he's like, well, you know, we're going to make it a very open, brand new newsroom, uh, promote collaboration. What it really is is he's taking that second floor and that that Warren and uh, corridors and blocked off areas, barricaded areas behind which Roger Ailes did all these things to all these women. Uh, these places that had all these hidden microphones and cameras in which he was monitoring what employees were saying and doing, and he's gutting all of it. He's tearing all of that away and he's building a newsroom there to say this is going to be a new day. That's fine and that's probably important and good symbolism and hats off to him. What he doesn't have is a new day on the air. And I think one of the points you raised earlier is there was such a close connection between the behavior and characteristics off the air of Roger Hills and what he propelled on the air. They don't have that vision, that sensibility, that clarity about who they are. So they're getting pretty good ratings. They're getting drubbed by the other two guys at cable news at the moment because the news is so intense. But they also are limping into the future. And that is going to be a real problem for the Murdochs and for Fox News itself. Thanks, David. You bet. Newsfeed is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, and Daryl Levy. 